Good morning, Mountain Park. My name is Alan. So glad that you're here. Those were photos from the um, uh, family Sunday, the cookout that we had last Sunday. It was absolutely fabulous. A good time. Had by all. If you missed it, I am so sorry that you missed it. It was absolutely a blast. I do want to say a public thanks to literally hundreds of volunteers who made last weekend happen. We blessed people in our neighborhood. Yeah. Hundreds. We blessed uh, people in our neighborhood with Saturday night and the parents' night out so that parents could go out and have a date. We got emails back from people saying, we haven't been on a date in, and we can't remember since we, since we first had our kids. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And then that cookout was a blast. The volunteers, not only did they do a good job, but they had, they had a good time. I heard about the first round grillers who wouldn't even pass up their spatulas to the second round folks. They wouldn't even let them go. They said, get away from me, I'm flipping. And they just had so much fun with it. Uh, my wife and I absolutely had nothing to do with the cookout. It, it, it was a great thing, and and we, we didn't plan it. We didn't work at it. We didn't have anything to do with it. Some people came up to my wife and said, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And she said, don't thank me. And she redirected everyone to Lori Hall, who uh, is Marsha's wife. She's the one who did the whole deal. She volunteered her time to make this thing happen. She did an outstanding job. And throughout uh, last Sunday, I, I learned another difference between my wife and I. There's lots of differences. I was just telling someone in the back, she really is my better half. Here's another example, is that uh, neither of us had anything to do with the picnic. And people came up with to both of us saying thank you. And when they came up to me and said, thank you, thank you so much for this, I said, you're welcome. <laughs> I said, you know, it, it was nothing. Really, because it was for me. But, 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 but anyway, uh, it was a, uh, it was a hoot. But uh, today, this morning, we're getting back into the whole shebang. And, and if you are new with us, the whole shebang is this journey we're committing 2010 to the whole year, looking at the grand story of God. That we would be transformed by the grand story of God, the whole shebang. And in these first few weeks, these first seven weeks. We are looking at basically the first half of the Old Testament. And it is all being encapsulated under the, the concept of the story of the word, the Exodus. And in your binders, the first tab is labeled the Exodus. And so far, every sheet from the weeks that we have been in the whole shebang, they fit into the Exodus story. And this is the way God chose to launch, to set the stage for the whole shebang, for this grand, beautiful story. What we've seen is that there are three characters in the story. There is God, the creator, the lover, the pursuer, the father, who deeply desires a restored relationship with character number two. And that's us, the beloved, the pursued. Then there is a third character in this story, the enemy, or as Genesis says, the serpent or the Satan, who wants nothing more than to destroy this relationship between characters one and characters two, between characters one and two, between us and God. And so this is kind of the, the, the foundation for this. And what we've looked at throughout these uh, weeks is that God wants us to remember that He is with us, that He's made a covenant to be with us, and that we can trust Him in this process. In this story. Now today, we're launching into a new question and basically saying, okay, do I need, as part of character number two, do I need to enter into this relationship with God? Do I need to do that? Do I need to be saved? 
Do I need a Savior? In other words, is this um, a necessity or is it an option? Is it a good idea or is it an absolute requirement? How we're going to uh, go, go after this is, is basically the kind of the practical angle of this is that, you know, perhaps we've heard on the radio or in church before, if you've been in church, that, that without God, your life will be miserable. And without a relationship with Christ, everything will be horrible for you. But what about the person who lives next door to you, who doesn't go to church, who has no interest in God whatsoever, who has a larger, nicer house, who has a better looking family than yours, who, who just seems to be enjoying life more than you're enjoying life. Explain that. How does that work in the whole scheme of things? How does that work for somebody to have no relationship with God to be saying, life is good? Is it a need or is it an option to have this relationship with God? How we're going to look at this is we're going to look at the, the next section in the whole shebang story. And we're going to look at a people and find out what happens when we choose not to enter into this covenantal relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your story. And once again, we submit to it. We come here uh, today and once again, we want to hear from you, God. This is your story. Would you come and penetrate our hearts? Speak in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So again, what happens when we choose not to enter into this covenantal relationship with God? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a book in the Old Testament called Judges. Judges is the seventh book. If you brought your Bible, hopefully you did. Bring your Bible, bring your binder. This is your reminder. Okay, so so hopefully you brought your Bibles. It's the seventh book in the Old Testament. And so far... Where the, where the people of God are is they were rescued from slavery in Egypt and they were brought into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. So they have land, they have a great story, they have an even greater God, but they have no leader. They are millions of people scattered throughout the Middle East with no leader. Now, the concept of judges is not the way we typically think of a judicial, uh, legal decision maker. Yes, you're right, you're wrong, come before me, okay? I judge you to be correct, you to be incorrect. That's not at all the way people were referred to as judges in this book, in this story, in this part of the whole shebang. The, the concept of a judge is that God would raise up a leader from among a group of his people, that millions of people scattered around. No judge was ruler over all of Israel. They were simply leaders that God would bring up at a certain time among a certain part of his people. And they were to uh, cast judgment on those around the people of God who were opposing the people of God. So if the surrounding people, the surrounding nations were opposing the people of God, God would raise up a deliverer, a judge to, to cast judgment on those around them. That's what a judge is. And there is a pattern that we see very consistently in the book of Judges. A pattern through four things. A pattern of disobedience, judgment, crying out to God, and deliverance. This is what happens throughout the book of Judges. Disobedience, 
and connecting with our title of do we really need to be saved? Disobedience is saying, I don't need God anymore or I don't need God at all for the first time. Disobedience. I don't need God. Judgment. God saying, yes, you do. Third is crying out to God of saying, okay, now I see it, God. I need help. I need you. I need you. Help. Then deliverance is God saying, is, is God providing and helping, providing a judge, providing a helper, a leader, a deliverer, and then saying, hopefully this will be enough for you to remember that you need me. Hopefully this will sustain you. But then it's a cycle. Nope, I don't need God anymore. Yes, you do. Oh, help God. Hopefully you'll help remember. I don't need God anymore. It's this cycle that goes around and around and around. And I want to take a look at a quick example of this in Judges chapter 3. The book of Judges, third chapter, verse 7. It is the story of one of the judges. There are multiple judges in this in, in the book of Judges. This is the story of, of one, a lesser-known judge named Othniel. Verse 7. Just to see this pattern that I've been talking about. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And uh, here's the disobedience part. Where they are, they are choosing to worship other gods. The Baals and the Asherahs, these are the gods of the neighboring people. And so the people of God are saying, uh, I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going to land. Uh, I am going to have kind of a mixture of these gods. And this is called idolatry. Sometimes we think of idolatry and we think this is an ancient problem. This is not something that we experience, but we experience our own version of idolatry. This is, this is when we, idolatry means creating our own God. And for many of us, for many people in our culture, the idea of one God, this character, this one God can be, can feel so limiting. One God. Who does he think he is? There was an article in the Wall Street Journal a little ways back called Redefining God. I want to read just one sentence uh, from that article. It says, across the country, the faithful are redefining God. They are embracing quirky, individualistic conceptions of God to suit their own spiritual needs. And the article continues on as if this is a good thing. As if, wow, our culture is becoming more enlightened, being able to redefine and shape God to become whoever we want him or her or it to be. See, in, in the whole shebang, in this grand story, we can't do that. There's a lot of freedom we have in the whole shebang. We do not have the freedom to say, okay, character number one, I'm going to define who you are, what you say, what you do, how this whole works. I am going to define you, character number one. We don't get to do that in the whole shebang. God says, I am who I am. God says, I'm, I'm unchanging. Your role is not to redefine me. So here's the disobedience that the people of God were experiencing. And, and some of us struggle with this in, in different ways. Deliverance in verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Neharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Two things about this. One, this is the judgment part. This is the, the part where God says, no, you do need me. Second thing is, uh, once again, I modeled the fact that if you don't know how to pronounce words in the Old Testament, 
Just say them quickly. You just rush over them quickly and people will think you are so smart. They won't have time to go back and see that you added whole syllables uh, in, in, in that word. You just kind of do it quickly. It's a, it's a tip. You'll, you'll just be blessed by it. Okay. Disobedience, judgment, verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, He raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Again, crying out to the Lord, deliverer. Here's this pattern. Disobedience, judgment, crying out to the Lord, deliverance. Around and around and around we see this go. We see this again in the story of Deborah in chapter 4, the next, uh, the next chapter. Verse 1, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hagaroyim. There's a problem when, it, when it's the last word in what you're reading. Then people can stop and, and see that you were nowhere close. But, but here, once again, we have the disobedience and then the deliverance of God here in this story. And then, again, we, we, the people cry out to God, and they get delivered by a leader, a judge named Deborah. The bad guy in this story is Sisera. And what happens is Deborah ends up chasing Sisera down, uh, God provides a deliverer in Deborah and ends up chasing Sisera down. And Sisera hides in the home of a woman named Jael where he believes he will find safety. Jump with me, if you will, to verse 19. I'm thirsty, Sisera says to Jael. Again, he thinks he's in a safe place. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. You can't say the Bible's boring. This is Hollywood stuff. This is awesome. Some of you go, why did you read that in church? It, you, it's in here. I didn't write it. Okay, this is, this is, this is exciting stuff. You gotta read your Bible. It's, it's way more than what we think it is and what we assume it is by just kinda not looking at it. It's great stuff, great story. Story is consistent. There is disobedience, there is judgment, there's crying out to God, there is a deliverer. And the overall message of the book of Judges is that we find the people of God who continue to believe, I can do this on my own, I don't need God, I can do this on my own, They cannot do it on their own. What we see over and over again with this cycle is they need a deliverer. They need a deliverer. And this flows into the next book of the Bible, which is called the book of Ruth. It's the other book we're going to take a look at here today. Flip, if you would, a few pages, a few chapters. Judges is 21 chapters. And flip to... The book of Ruth, the first verse of the first chapter. Ruth starts off, in the days when the judges ruled, in other words, it was the same time period, it was the same section of the whole shebang story. There was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. 
The man's name was Elimelech. I actually got that one right. His wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Just a little pause here for a little interesting trivia. Oprah, this is not a joke, Oprah was intended to be named Orpah, but there was a mistake in the handwriting, in the transition of this, and she ended up being named Oprah. That she actually discovered a new name. And if you're if you're typing on word, Oprah is accepted, and Oprah is not. Yes, it'll have the little underline. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, so uh, that's one to to go home with. Uh, so. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So just to recap, we have a widow named Naomi with her two widow daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi decides to go back to her homeland. She's in Moab, and she decides, I'm going to at least go back home. We had land back in Bethlehem. I'm going to go back here. Orpah decides to stay in Moab. Uh, it, was, it was a loving departure, but she said, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stay here. Bless you, Naomi. Ruth, Naomi could not get rid of Ruth. And Ruth went with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Now, this was a huge sacrifice for her because the chances of her, she was a young woman, the chances of her getting remarried while taking care of her, her mother-in-law, her widowed mother-in-law, chances were very slim especially in a new territory, this land that is not her own. Ruth makes a great sacrifice to do this. So they head to Jerusalem, verse 19 here in chapter 1. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. The word Mara means bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She sounds so unpleasant to me in this section. Don't you hate it when Eeyores complain about life in this way? It drives me crazy to just kind of look at what what we're saying when we say things like this is we're saying, God, you're not taking care of me. You're not blessing me the way you're blessing somebody else. My neighbor doesn't even know you. He or she has a nicer car house than I do. And we're saying, as a result of this, as a result of what I see, what I what I have, God, I don't need you anymore. Now, I'm not pretending to understand what Naomi is going through here. Being a widow and having to, to leave Moab and go back with her tail between her legs, back to her hometown. I'm not, I can't even begin to understand that scenario. I can't begin to understand some of the pain and the difficulty that you are experiencing in your journey. I'm not making light of that. But the Almighty has not brought misfortune upon you, which is what Naomi is concluding here. The Almighty does not bring misfortune upon you. God grieves with your pain. He wants to be in loving relationship with with you. He grieves when you hurt, when you're in pain. 
So Naomi does not respond well, but Ruth does. Chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. She went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turns out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So Boaz, it turns out, is related to Ruth and Naomi. This becomes hugely significant in the story. And Boaz becomes smitten with Ruth. I mean, what is sexier than a woman gleaning? Really, I mean... Gentlemen, am I, am I right or am I right? So he's watching Ruth glean behind the people. And Boaz even says, take care of this young lady. Take care of her. Drop some extra stuff behind you so that she may pick it up and have all the more bounty and, and have all the more favor while she is gleaning on our land. And she does well. And she goes back home. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, this phrase, a kinsman redeemer, it's probably not going to mean much to to us in our culture, to, to many of us here. This was a significant part of Jewish law, part of their culture. We see in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, the clarity of the kinsman redeemer concept. What this means is that for anybody who is Jewish and owns land, if they, as a result of their poverty, have to sell some of their land, then the nearest relative, the nearest kin, needed to come and buy back that land for that Jewish relative. They needed to buy it back to redeem that land for the one who is impoverished, the one who is in trouble. That's the kinsman redeemer was to step in. Now, Naomi was in a bad place. She needed to sell the land that she and Elimelech had that was a part of their family. She needed to sell it off. And it wasn't until they ran into Boaz that they discovered they have a kin, a relative, who could buy back the land. Boaz became their kinsman redeemer. And so the, the, the overall message of this story of Ruth is that regardless of Ruth's strength and her work ethic, she could not become what she became on her own. She could not do it on her own. You see, Boaz stepped in as the kinsman redeemer, restored the land, redeemed the land, married Ruth, and then Ruth and Naomi were taken care of for the rest of their lives. But that didn't happen because of Ruth's strength. She could not have done that on her own. She needed external help. She needed a redeemer. In Judges, we learned that the people needed a deliverer. Here in Ruth, we realize that that Ruth and Naomi needed a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Now, a beautiful thing about the Christian faith, about the Christian story, 
about the, the relationship between characters one and two is that it is a relationship. It's not a religion. Christ did not come to set up a religion to start a list of do's and don'ts. This whole thing, the whole shebang is based on a restored relationship between characters one and two. But with the beauty of a relationship, let's not allow the story to be softened so much that we miss the need to have a deliverer, a redeemer, a relationship with God. See, because sometimes this relationship thing becomes so soft and, oh, it's a relationship. And we, we almost compare it to like a dating scene that we get to just kind of play the field a little bit and say, okay, well, who am I going to date? Who am I going to have a relationship with? Is it going to be God or Buddha? God or Joseph Smith? God or money? God or whatever? With whom am I going to have this life-transforming relationship? Or maybe... If, uh, if you want a little bit more freedom in that relationship, then you might say, as, as you would in dating, might say, well, I want to, I want to see other gods. I want to have a little bit of freedom to, to see other gods. Or if things don't go well and you want to get more separation and you say, God, it's not you, it's me. And, and we're, we want to give some more space with that. It is a relationship. It is a relationship. But let us not compare it to a dating relationship. It is not a dating scene. More soberingly, it's more like this scene. That is, of course, the disturbing beginning of Saving Private Ryan. There is a fierce battle going on for your heart, for your attention, for your affection, for your love, for your worship, We are unwise to walk on the beach of life and just wonder, hmm, maybe I am going to choose this relationship with God. Maybe not. Because if we idly walk on the beach, we will get taken out. There is a third character in the story, an enemy who so hates you, wants to destroy this relationship. He stands in that tower and he does whatever he can to take you out, to distract you from your need for a savior, a deliverer. So we say things like, well, I love this concept of a loving God, of a God who promises that he'll be with me, a God who wants me to trust him. I get that. I love that. But the Jesus piece, the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to God, which is a part of the New Testament story, that I just I just can't do that. I, 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 I'm loving life. I don't, I don't need any of that. I'm wealthy. I'm happy. I am doing well in life. Life is good. <clears throat> what, what, I've got this thing, this, this sexual desire. It's a natural desire. And I must pursue this. I must continue with this. I must continue in a sexual relationship that is outside the bounds of A married relationship as defined in Scripture. I have to continue to have a sexual relationship with this person I'm not married to. I have to continue in this sexual activity. I just have to. I need it. I need to continue this addiction. 
This, I, I cannot stop this. I need this more than I need God. You don't understand, Alan. I need this more than I need God. I need to continue in this, this thing I'm doing in the dark, secret place. Maybe someday later I'll get serious about God, but not now. <clears throat> Some people challenge Christianity and those who follow Christ saying that, saying that we need a crutch. That Christianity is a crutch for those who need something else. It's way more than a crutch for me. I need way more than a crutch. When I'm lying wounded on the beach because of an assault that the enemy has had on me or because of my own sin, I don't need someone to throw me a crutch and say, good luck to you. I don't need a crutch. I need a rescuer. I need someone to lift me over the shoulders and carry me home. I need a, I need a deliverer. I need a redeemer. I need a savior. The book of Judges, the book of Judges makes this so beautiful clear. We need a deliverer. And in Ruth, it's, it's so clear. You need a kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth, in chapter 4, verse 14, you can look at it another time. I'm going to have it up on the screen here. But when Naomi, when all this happens, the people gather around and they say, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Way to go, Naomi. This is a thousand years before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. This story launches, it is a, it is a, foretelling of the story of Jesus Christ. He is our kinsman redeemer. He came down to be with us, to be our kin, to be one of us, to be our kin. And the book of Mark says that he he came as a ransom for many. He came, he died on the cross to buy us back from from the, the loss that we've experienced as a result of our sin. He came to redeem us. He is our kinsman redeemer. So we can say today, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now maybe for some of you, this is, this is new. This, this need part that sure, spirituality and a relationship with God, it's always been an option and you've known other people who have been a part of this, but the need part, do you need a savior? Maybe this is the first time that you've realized where you are on the beach and what is happening on the beach of life and the attacks that you're experiencing and whether you need help in that situation. Perhaps there are others of you who've known this for a long time, but you've drifted far from it. That maybe you're back in church now, but you haven't been in church for a while or you're just jumping back in today. And it's been a long time since you have assured yourself of this kinsman-redeemer relationship. See, Jesus Christ is the kinsman-redeemer. He is the deliverer. But He doesn't just take care of everything. We, We must invite Him in to do so. We have a responsibility to say yes to Him in order to allow that restored relationship to happen. And I believe some of you are not certain as to whether that has happened in your life or not. So as we close in prayer here today, and we're going to sing one more song after this, 
But as we close in prayer here today, I want to make sure this day, this day, that every person in this room has the opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ as your kinsman redeemer, your deliverer, your savior, your Lord, your rescuer. So I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And just right where you are with your head bowed, your eyes closed, if you either for the first time or if, uh, or if you want to be certain today that you have embraced Jesus Christ as your kinsman redeemer, your savior, I just invite you to, to slip up your hand. If you want to do that for the first time or you want to be assured of that here this morning, I see in the back to my right, in the middle right in front of me, to my left, yes sir, wave to my far left. Just slip up your hand right in front of me here in the middle. God bless you. God bless you. You can put your hand down. Let's pray together. God, the stakes are high. Many of us here in this room are enjoying life. Life is good. The beach is good. But the reality is that in your whole story, in your whole shebang, as disturbing as this might be, God, we need you. We need to be saved. We need to be delivered. We need you to do something in our souls that we cannot do on our own. And that is have a restored relationship with God. So Father, for those who raised their hands, I pray that you would bring certainty into their story right now. God, that right now here in this place, as you are listening, as the angels have gathered around in this place to celebrate changed lives, transformed hearts, that there would be a true heart and mind transformation that says, I, today, this day, I recognize that I need a Savior. None of us have this all figured out. But none of us want to be laid out on the beach, God. If you raise your hand, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. You say, God, I recognize that I need a Savior. I cannot do this on my own. Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and be my kinsman redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us stand for one final great celebratory song. If you have said yes to Jesus here today, celebrate. We celebrate with you.